UK Motor Talk. Well, hi everyone. This is UK Motor Talk, and we are back again. I'm Mike. Hello. I'm Graham. Hello. And I'm Dave. How are we all? All good, I think. Apart I from think Jim, so. who has an unfortunate problem with his plumbing <laughs> and has sprung a leak somewhere. Uh, less said about that, I think, the better. He is reaching that age. He definitely is. However, we did manage to survive another track day. Yay! I, was it I fun? No, it was fun. I have no idea how this plucky little car manages to keep at it. We went up to Snetterton in, in the world's flattest, uh, area. well, I say the world's flattest area, certainly the UK's flattest area, it seems, Norfolk. I think possibly the first time I've been. Beautiful, windy, very windy. <laughs> and we drove up, made the whole way up there, fine. Ran around the track. I broke the car. I'm not going to lie. I have broken it a bit. This is the first time we've had to open the toolbox in probably eight track days, I reckon, to get something out other than a screwdriver to take the number plates off. And we've done, we did a few bits and pieces to it to get it ready to go, including welding on a new section of exhaust, centre section, back box putting in an induction kit so it, it can breathe a little bit a little bit easier now and we've probably added a full two and a half brake horsepower i'm sure uh, but it does feel i know racy um but it, it does Easy. feel a little bit a little bit keener now than it used to however i went i'm going to be careful how i say this um i, I came screaming through bomb hole um uh, yeah you can, you can understand why that's uh well that's, that's a little bit tricky um but anyway screaming through 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 bomb hole and uh, went from fourth to uh, fourth to third at probably a bit too quickly, and there was just an almighty clonk, and I managed to snap the welds in half on the on the new exhaust somewhere in the middle. So now it sounds like a Honda. <laughs> I, I have no idea what I've done to it, but you know the sound that VTEC cars make when they go flying past you with a bean can exhaust on the back. It sounds like that. Did you have no gaffer tape on you? Well, I thought about it, and before now we had bodged a previous exhaust using. That, that sort of hairy, not hairy filler. No, that's, that's the other thing. Using the, t- you know, the tape that looks like a plaster hmm. and those whole bits of putty. And all that happened was when you, when you suddenly downshift at however many RPM you're doing, it just blows all the bits out of the exhaust all over the track. So, <laughs> so Making that was you no popular good. with the marshals and, and yes. such like. Yeah. Yes. Well, we knew it wasn't going anywhere. We still seemed to be under the noise limit, which is okay. Uh, it pops and bangs now because the resonator's gone. And then we drove back to the paddock and managed to get a, a full-on puncture in the paddock. And we'd stopped taking spare sets of wheels to track days, probably about four, five, six track days ago, some, some time ago anyway, because we'd never had a problem. And uh, picked up, I can't remember what it was, I think we just got a hole in the tyre. And it just went completely flat almost instantly. But luckily we carry a spare. Now the spare in the boot is an original 15-inch Fiesta alloy. Um, which we thought fine. It's the same size, and it's got the it's got a a, a Toyo T1R or TR1, the one that's the older version of what we got on the car now, same as as the set I had on the Onion previously. And so we figured, no problem. I'll, I'll we'll stick this wheel on there, and I'll I'll take it back out. And I did that. Went into the first corner, and it was Jesus as it went completely <laughs> sideways. I hadn't taken into account that the wheels were got on there a seven J, and this is a six J for a start. And the tyre must be pretty ancient. So there was just absolutely no grip at all on the near side rear. And it made it made the hand... I'm, I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying sketches without saying sketches. Um, anyway, it was, it was sketchy. 
uh, going flying into the uh, flying into the corner there, and um, yeah, the thing was just completely sideways, but only in one direction, which really made for some some pretty terrifying handling characteristics when you when you go into a corner at speed. Um, and predictably, Jim absolutely loved that for some <laughs> unknown reason. He thought this was the best thing we'd ever done to the car, making it completely sketchy at the back end. And suggested maybe we should get some worse tyres for the back and maybe some, some semi-slicks or something for the front, just to make it more grippy at the front and more slippy at the back. But it was, it was not pleasant to drive. Plus, I made the terrible mistake, and I've done this before, I did this at Donington, of not switching the ancient traction control off. So you go into the corner, the car starts to rotate round, and as it goes, the car thinks, oh, hang on a second, I'm having a slide here. I'd better do something about that. Oh, what should I do? I'll oh, grab the brake on the left, then the right-hand side. So whilst you're midway through correcting it, it grabs the brake on the side you don't want and tries to throw you in the opposite direction off the track. And it is absolutely terrifying to drive. I think I'd have to just pull the fuse out. I think that's got to be the answer for that. A big post-it note on the dashboard, like what we used to have when we went to France, a drive on the right. Went, you know, you're just in your line of sight whenever you come out of a petrol station. You need that right near the traction control or somewhere in your vision that you can't ignore it. So when you get in the car, you actually press it. Well, there's, there's a new rule. Um, Jim has decided that if I poo in the seat, I need to be the person that drives it back. I did point out that the seat does unbolt and they're the same passenger to driver. So worst case, you could swap one over for the other. But there was a considerable brown pants moment as I went completely sideways in the first corner. And then the second corner, having not learnt my lesson obviously well enough in the first and thinking, what the hell have I done to this to make this so terrible? That reminds me, probably should order a couple of tyres up because uh, it's still in the boot. Oh, and there was something else. The car's stripped out, as I'm sure you're all aware, including the drain plugs. In the, uh, in the spare wheel well and in the boot, which up until now has not been a problem. But what we encountered on the way back was a lot of rain and a lot of standing water. And uh, what, <laughs> although under normal circumstances it would allow the water out, what this really does is allow the water in. But we didn't realise until, uh, until we got back and thought, why is the spare wheel wet? And everything else in the back of the car. So, yeah, there's some work to be done improving this thing. Not good for a Ford of that era, generally, is it? Wet in places mm. that you shouldn't be getting wet. No, and, and this little car, I mean, we've been keeping an eye on the values of them, has started creeping up and creeping up. And nice ones now are going for, and that when we bought it was probably a couple, and it probably would be four, because it's an okay one. And they're going up and up again. It was probably a bit too nice to do what we did to it. Um, but hey-ho, <laughs> we've ruined it now. But is it undoable? You know, if somebody was had done this and has got like buyer's remorse or greed, as we now know it, what <laughs> what would need to be done to yours apart from you know, basically most of the car well, all of the carpeting, I imagine, and a lot of um lot of trim. Is it do you keep the bits? Have you kept all the bits or did you flog all that to no. pay for the bits that you then sort of bolted back on? Yeah, so we, we did quite well, um, really with this. So when we bought it and for, for those of you that, that have heard the story before, forgive me, but this is probably some time ago. And I think we've had it for about five years now, so quite quite a while. Um, the little Fiesta ST, it came into the garage with a an issue. We'd, we'd, the chap had been told that he needed to replace the coolant top hose and hadn't done it, basically, and it burst and cooked the head gasket. And so uh, I had a, a, a call from a mutual friend who didn't know where I worked and said... Uh, I've got a friend who's got Fiesta ST, it's dead. But I thought, you like old broken Ford, so you might be interested. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, where is it? And he said, he told me where it was, and it happened to be where I work. So I said, oh, I'll pop downstairs and have a look. And I popped down and had a look, and it was relatively tidy. And it was a really high spec. So it had 
bearing in mind this is a 2007 car, it's got auto lights, auto wipers, full heated leather, reversing sensors, tinted windows, basically had all the options ticked on it, and relatively, relatively tidy, except for a weird outward dent, which I found out from the previous owner only about a year ago, his suspension had collapsed and it pushed the wheel up through the <laughs> into the wing, and that's what caused this weird outward dent, thanks to a pothole. Um, yeah, so I, I took a look at the car and said, look, it's, it's not really worth a huge amount because it needs an engine. And the guy just wanted to get rid of it quick. And I said, well, I'm probably about 400 quid on this car. So he said, okay, fine, that's, that'll do. And so we took the car, stripped the heated leather interior, which it turned out was quite rare, having three headrests in the back, if that means anything, to reflex pack, apparently. For those of you out there who are as nerdy and geeky as I am. Um, <laughs> and we sold the interior for 300 quid and then sold the wheels for 150 quid and took all the rest of the trim out and basically binned it so most of the rest of it has, has gone in a skip we don't didn't keep it headlining went it had curtain airbags all across the ceiling they all went because obviously you don't want those going off when there's <laughs> there's no interior in there and you're you're in a track car so that's probably bad news lots of bits and pieces that were inside the car we disappeared we kept the stereo we kept the air conditioning and the beeper for the parking sensors uh, <laughs> for some reason it seems quite quite an overspec for a track car and then we came across another which had um, come in and was due for scrap. The body was was rotten. It, it, the car hadn't been pampered, but it had been serviced every year. And it had proper, full main dealer service history, which is what you want, and only 70,000 miles on the clock. So we, we did a bit of a deal and uh, popped the engine out of the black one, which had to be, had to be scrapped, put the engine from, from the silver one into the black one, because <laughs> it was still just about run, but it was being cubed anyway, and swapped the engine over. And yeah, we, we had ourselves a fully running car and we were about 50 quid each in credit. So the deal is if either of us bend this thing, then we have to give the other person 50 quid because Jim and I co-own this car and we walk away and that's it. So I guess it's the uh, not quite the same scale here. Not quite. I mean, I'm not even possibly there's not even the same ballpark pitch, whatever you want to call it, town, city. As the, the Nick Mason principle with, the, with his 250 GTO, he only paid so much for it, so that's as much as it's only ever worth. So even if this thing's worth 10 grand in five years' time, 20 years' time, whatever it is, it really only owes us 50 quid each, or rather it owes us positive 50 quid each. Not sure. Well, that's a frighteningly grown-up way of looking at it, and it's commendable. <laughs> yeah. So, so there we go. So that our, our little track car, we've obviously spent some, some money and time and bits and pieces on it over the course, and it's had new tyres and new... Um, it had the 15-inch wheels fitted. So we've spent a couple of quid on it, but really it doesn't owe us a loss of money, which means we can afford to take it out there, enjoy it, and not really worry too much about breaking it. But we do always take a second car with us, and it's a long drive from us from here to Norfolk. It's about three and a half hours. We drove up the night before, stayed in a fantastic B&B, name of which I forget, but I'm, if I can remember it, then I'll make sure that I pop it on the on the note so we can, if, you, if you're heading up to Sneston, you can also stay there. And then the next uh, next day, drove down to the track, um, but I drove up in the Focus ST, which is my, my new family wagon, which was pretty comfortable, certainly compared to, to the Fist. And then back next day, but my goodness, it was just all stop-start traffic. It was just miserable, really. It was wet and it was it was just cold and just making your way through the gears, start, stop, start, stop. And you think it's one of those days where there's definitely an argument for autonomous vehicles, even if they can only go up to 37 miles an hour, whatever they're legislating in this in this country, because it would have been more pleasant just <laughs> just to be in something that would drive itself. And certainly Jim's motor will be able to do that. So you can sit in there and you just have to basically just hold on to the steering wheel and it does the rest of it for you. But certainly far more comfortable. 
it sounds like you've had a lot of fun and it's it's nice as well when you think of it in terms of the car only owes you 50 quid well 50 quid each in fact you're 50 quid better off each because of the the car and think of the enjoyment you're getting out of it and brown trouser moments aside that's got to be a winner really isn't it if all you've got to do is pay for the track daytime and stick some petrol in and the odd new set of tires for which obviously you you need to be shelling out at the moment that's that's a lot of fun for not too much outlay really especially if you manage to recoup a lot through sort of parting out the bits yeah and i think we seem to have struck by chance onto a winning combo with the car because it's it's soft enough and compliant enough the springs were not particularly expensive ones the tires are so they say these toyo t1rs because we've got 15s on there which was a bit of a master stroke in getting the thing to accelerate harder and they're much lighter wheels. They're also really cheap, so it's about 180 quid for a set of four tyres for it. So it really is good, cheap fun, which is good, because it's what I can afford. And we can get out there and we can enjoy it, and it means you can enjoy driving in a spirited fashion on the track, so you don't have to drive like an idiot on the road. Delighted by the news today that uh, Scotland is to have the first fleet of autonomous buses. Yeah, apparently 14 miles uh, goes between Fife and Edinburgh, so you'll have a lovely view as you go over the Forth Road Bridge. And they reckon that there should be about 10,000 passenger journeys per week. So it'll be interesting to see whether they manage to sustain that or exceed it. I think they've only, is it five buses they've got at the minute? Five fully occupied buses. Does it, it seems a big number to me, but clearly they've worked it out and um, they're hopeful of doing it. Depends what they're charging. If they're anything like the uh, cost of buses in southern England, they'll get about four people with bus passes <laughs> to use the service because nobody can afford to travel on a bus in this part of the world. But they're entertained by the fact that the autonomous buses, sure to comply with the current laws for autonomous anything, will have a driver who is sitting in the correct seat, capable of taking over. Not quite sure what the other person that uh, that is being suggested will be doing, perhaps collecting fares like the old-fashioned conductor. Well, we'll watch with interest. I mean, I hope it's a success because anything that sort of frees up space on the road, I mean, I I have my concerns over the fact it's putting people out of work, essentially. It's putting bus drivers out of work. But then these things, like you said, are going to be crewed by two people, one of whom is there to leap into action should the thing suddenly decide it's going to go in all Herbie and having a mind of its own. And also (laughs) what they call a, a bus captain, or as we used to know them, conductor, who is there to help people on and off and monitor the technology and buying tickets and such. So, you know, perhaps it's actually creating more jobs than it's taking away. It's just meaning you don't have to sit behind the wheel quite so much. Interesting to see how well they develop over that route and be interesting to see if that route then is expanded if this first trial of uh, the five buses is successful. Let's hope so. But like any other sort of bus story, two or three seem to come along at once, or in this case, autonomous stories, because I read uh, from uh, a recent new scientist two or three weeks ago that San Francisco has temporarily halted all trials of autonomous vehicles, partly because there have been a number of incidents, the story doesn't specify, but there have been trials of autonomous taxis, and there have been many complaints that the autonomous taxis just suddenly stop abruptly without any signal, which does remind me of London taxi cabs, which seem to do just that, but in this case... There have been multiple minor accidents in San Francisco. The local authority have decided enough is enough. Until um, things are a little bit more reliable, they should um, suspend the trials. 
But the one that I, I thought was most amusing at all, and I, I had to double-check the date because I thought at first it must be an April 1st story. And this particular one I double-checked, and it actually was a story that came out in March but occurred in February, which is that Ford have secured in the U.S. a patent Patent, patent, whichever takes your fancy, to create uh, an autonomous car that can return itself to the dealer if you default on your payments for it, which I thought was vastly entertaining. You can see why I thought it was probably a first or April story. <laughs> um, but apparently, if you are in arrears, the car will become progressively more difficult to drive over some reasonable period, like three or four minutes. And will then, uh, if you still fail to uh, pay up, rather than sending around somebody to uh, shake you up and recover the car, the car will drive itself to the dealership, whether you're in it or not. You will have no control over it. I mean, there's there's a sort of American myth about the repo man, uh, but it looks like all of those repo men and women could well be uh, put out of work by this. I think it's a double shame, but bit of bizarre thinking by Ford, but, you know, they've gone that way. Yeah, the car that repossesses itself, that's very efficient, really, isn't it? Hmm. Self-possessed, I suppose, in this case. (laughs) Exactly. I'm sure it waits until the thing's fully charged before it tries to repossess itself, so it uses your electricity or your money that's paid (laughs) for the electricity to get you back, so it makes sure that you've got at least enough cash to do that. Yeah, even if it does strand you at a uh, out of the way dealership with with no bus fare home, but um, oh, maybe you catch one of those autonomous buses and hopefully get on without anybody noticing. <laughs> Read the small print when you're signing anything with Ford on the top. I think would be the answer there. <laughs> anything electric anyway in the future. Yeah, it's interesting times. And I, I think the idea of the buses is probably makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you could probably have more running closer together, which has always been the um, thing they've said about people running on motorways. And eventually when we're all driving autonomous cars and we get on a motorway and then we turn into trains, a bus is an even more effective version of that really isn't it yeah quite agree i mean there's a sort of inevitability about it but i i think we are um, a little bit at the frontier still and um, we don't have all of the frailties of the systems ironed out i think we should keep an eye on the bus scenario but it is the way we're going to be going but you know the development of these things is is incredibly slow i can remember must be in the 60s seeing a piece of film of mercedes experiments with tracked cars you know and the autonomous control of those you know that that goes back an awful long way and we're you know 60 years later and we're we're just beginning to make these things work or are we or are we (laughs) or are we (laughs) yeah well sort of moving on from um very high tech and autonomous and cars that can drive themselves there's there's one man who's been holding out a little bit and uh would rather that we were a bit more in control of what we're driving and none other than friend of the podcast, or we'd like to think friend of the podcast, he's he's local to at least a couple of us, Gordon Murray, the man who gave us the McLaren F1 and some very successful other McLarens, mostly red and white ones, has uh, obviously now set up on his own and is producing some eye-wateringly expensive super, or should they be hypercars, I suppose, which are all sold out for the foreseeable future, even at the £2.8 million that uh, the man's asking. But I was just watching the video today of uh, the T50, which is famously 
manual. You can only buy that with a uh, traditional H gate. No flappy paddles in your T50, which has got the most amazing Cosworth engine in the back. 3.9, naturally aspirated, that screams like a banshee and sounds very much like Formula One cars used to in the olden days. I watched the sign-off video on YouTube today where Dario Franchitti delivered it to him at his uh, country abode and then Gordon went off for a drive and there was a lovely moment where um, I think he was just caning it up the A3 you know obviously within the uh, the speed limit in case anyone from Surrey Police is listening and uh, there's just this lovely smile on his face where, where the thing howls behind him and just you know this is a man who traditionally has got a bit of a inscrutable expression um, you could see this is something that obviously got to him I mean it's a gorgeous looking thing it's a gorgeous sounding thing and today we find uh what's been unembargoed we we can now talk about it the the roofless version of the baby so-called gma car the t33 and this thing is absolutely beautiful it was designed gordon says to to be a spider from the outset he designed it because he knew he was always going to make one didn't want to chop the top off it was designed never to have one and my word, what a beautiful thing that is. And there's still some available if you've got the millions. Uh, you would need a substantial number of millions. But um, it's a delightful looking and delightful sounding car, as you suggest. And I, I'm really pleased to see Gordon Murray, this project, which has been brewing for a very long time, finally come to fruition. Because, you know, I've talked to Gordon over the years, and there have been a number of sort of stillborn city car projects, which, for whatever reason, didn't quite get the funding or weren't around at the right time and I, I it's one of the disadvantages i guess of being so far ahead of the game that doesn't necessarily mean that people want what you're currently designing because they don't see the need for it and and certainly that would be the case i think with some of the city cars that that he's designed um in the last couple of decades but an enormously successful designer in F1 and in sports cars. I mean, it's absolutely iconic cars. But I think your observation about the inscrutable expression, I think he learned that from Ron. He spent too long in Ron, Ron Dennis's company, <laughs> and Ron never gave away anything facially, or anything anyway. <laughs> I don't think he was... Well, he never gave away anything. He gambled a few things, but I don't think he ever willingly gave away things. And uh, like you say, certainly not expressions. Um, I'm very fortunate in that I don't live a million miles away from where uh, Professor Murray resides, although his abode is somewhat more palatial than mine. Um, and I... Quite often in the mornings, and have done for many years, when driving to work, I've seen him coming the other way because the factory at Shelford isn't that far from where I live. And I've seen him in a number of different cars in the morning. Normally, it's a, a smart roadster, which I think he loved because it was so small and compact and light and very efficient design. Uh, he's recently changed to an, an Alpine, which, um, again, probably the same principles, light, fun, does the job, designed to do what it does so well, you know, very much in his ethos. But, you know, there have been occasions in the past where I've been treated to him driving and others of his creation, such as the uh, the LCC Rocket, which was the, you know, the little red um, site, you know, <laughs> one behind the other yeah. 50s-style racing car. And on occasion, uh, I did, and I was very, very privileged, um, he was driving his F1 when he still had that. Uh, so if you're listening, Gordon, give us a wave. I'm usually driving either a Fiesta or a Skoda. I, I do wave. I do. <laughs> I don't. I don't wave. I'm not that sad. But it is It is quite, you know, it's quite a privilege, quite a privilege to see the man going to and from work. He's, um, 
you know, he's been instrumental in a number of the things that have interested me over the years. And um, like you say, I'm so pleased to see him doing so well. They've sold out of all the launch T50s, uh, the T50S and the T33 with the roof. And now the T33 Spider looks like half of those have already gone. 1.8 million each, if you want one. So uh, get your orders in quick. Well, I would hope with a commentary like that, that you're on some sort of commission. <laughs> if, he's, be nice. if he's a near no- neighbour. Yes, you ought to be on a, a piece of the action for, for such a glowing um, testimonial to the cars but much deserved definitely wonderful things a neighbor of mine says he's seen and heard gordon driving the pre-production prototype around Uh, i've yet to see that but i think you'd probably hear it coming way before you saw it because the thing just sounds epic yeah i love the sound of those f1 engines from the past the b12 I remember many, many years ago at a tyre test at Silverstone, sort of standing right behind the pit counter as the one of the B12 Ferraris came through. And it's just an unbelievable sound, you know, and it, it, it sort of stays. Not only does it deeply penetrate your motoring soul, but it stays with you an awful long time in the ringing of the ears. Indeed. But they don't sound like that anymore. Sadly not. And I know I give uh, Jim a bit of a hard time over them sounding like Dyson Hoovers these days. But, um, you know, that's the price of progress. But you can always see them when they wheel them out for things like Goodwood and, and the like. And uh, the things just the, the howl and the echoing noise that just sort of sits in the air, like you say, stirring stuff. Something that's come our way this week, uh, as you, you'll know, all of us here uh, are big fans of the uh, the late and much missed Richard Burns. You know, he's a, an expert in his field. Coming up at the Goodwood members meeting on the fifteenth and sixteenth in a couple of weeks' time, as we record this, uh, one of Richard's uh, company cars, probably the most well-known one of the lot, is coming up for sale at auction. I think Bonhams are handling it. Well, yeah, I received the catalogue today, and uh, this is the nineteen ninety nine. Subaru Impreza WRC 99 Rally car, which competed at uh, Monte Carlo and San Remo. It won a couple of stages on the Monte that year. I think it's just very rare that uh, you get a genuine works WRC car. Everybody and his brother seems to have something liveried up in a similar manner, but this is um, the genuine article with a price tag to match extensively restored it's in the same livery as uh, when it was competing in 99 and 2000 and it's sold with some assistance from ProDrive to get it all working now it's in apparently it's been fully restored fully equipped with huge amount of spares which you've got to have a pretty deep pocket for it bottom's expectation is somewhere between 430,000 and 520,000 sterling. I have to say, I mean, I'm not an expert on rally cars, but it does look gorgeous, and the underbonnet shots are extraordinary. There's more aluminium uh, pipework in there than there is in the average ship's boiler room, I think. It's really, really <laughs> packed together, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's one of the most successful rally cars of, of recent years, and um, in the hands of Richard Burns, and, and you know, Everybody remembers him very favourably. Great guy. He certainly was. Great car. And a great price tag. But then again, still cheaper than uh, the car that Gordon Murray's trying to sell us. So you never know. It could be a bit of a bargain, all things considered. You know, there's always the saying, if it looks right, it goes right. And this thing, as you say, really is 
a very good looking car. I mean, it's iconic. That blue, the Subaru blue. Originally, it was yeah. uh, in league with a, a cigarette company, wasn't it? And then they changed it to the Subaru Stars, but still the same sort of yellow and blue, usually with the gold wheels, and sparked so many on-road imitators, it was untrue. So many cars were driving around with 555 slapped on the side, weren't they, in the heyday of Imprezas? Oh, exactly so. It's um, I thought it was just something that did catch my eye was the fact that the light pod, which normally has, what, six lights on it, uh, has been detached, but it comes with the car, and you can put it back on if you so wish. But perhaps, uh, given the fact that so many cars these days blind everybody, uh, perhaps six lights is too much. I mean, it would be nice if this didn't go into a museum and if somebody did actually take it out and rally it again. It'd be lovely to see it doing the job it was designed to do and a, and a fitting tribute to Richard, I think. I mean, you saying about the lights there, I, I'm just looking at the picture now. It does look like overkill, but when you consider the headlight technology we have these days, you could probably blind people with something that's basically a billionth the size of that massive pod. I think that tells you how, how far lighting technology's come on in the last 20 years or so. Quite so. I mean, who, who needs lasers now? Every car seems to be equipped with its own lasers. So I'm just flicking through some of the other uh, some gorgeous cars coming up for sale on this this sale. Uh, Le Mans Lightweight Sports HRG from 1947. There's a DB3 from 1958 convertible. The usual Jaguars. Assorted Mini Coopers. Genuine article from the 60s. Including a Tickford. I haven't seen one of those for many years. An 84 Tickford. But... Uh, oh, and a 1901 Renault. Wow. What a mixture of cars. Well, we'll certainly be keeping our eyes on the on the results. As I say, it's in a couple of weeks' time, the, uh, the auction, and uh, we shall report back. You know, I've always wanted a rally car. I th- the idea that you can drive a race car on the road is definitely one that's appealing to me. And I know I've said before, if I was going to have something, you know, in terms of if I could afford to buy one special celebrity, if you like, sports, race car, it would have to be a rally car. And I think, for me, Burns and McRae always came as that sort of package, didn't they? It was the same sort of era. Mm. And I, I used to absolutely love playing Colin McRae rally. And I, I still credit that with having a rough idea of how a car might handle on snow. I know that sounds absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, but I swear that that saved me the first time I drove on snow and slid. And just decided that the only way I was going to get the, the, the car to rotate the way I wanted it to was just a little touch of handbrake, just to correct it. And, and by pure luck or fluke, because it certainly wasn't skill, it, it seems to do the trick. For me, maybe maybe the focus, I think, I don't, I don't know, everyone thinks in pretzel. I think maybe the, the 2001 WRC focus would be the one. Maybe an Escort Cosworth or the Repsol, you know, like the Tamiya cars, the Repsol livery. Mm. Iconic that, isn't it? Mm. But then, how much of this just comes down to nostalgia? Because I, I'm sure, and we've mentioned before about the stuff that pops up on Facebook and plagues us, and usually it's broken out from areas because it understands the algorithm now. <laughs> because I understand it, <laughs> but it knows you so well. It does, but this, it's a powerful thing, nostalgia. And I think this is the reason why we mentioned before that the fist is um, it, it, they're starting to climb in price. Cut your know, hot hatches from the early noughties. And definitely stuff from the 90s is as well. Yeah. But you found something quite nice, didn't you? Yes. Yes, I did. It's very much of my era. The Alpha 145, you'll remember, the uh, the so-called bread van, because it mm. did look a bit van-like at the back. 
was a car of the early mid to late 90s it lasted quite a while based on the fiat tipo chassis so essentially it's a fiat tipo it's a, another thing it's basically everything that was built on that chassis in italy at that time shared the same chassis which is no bad thing because they all handled well they all had loads of room I do like a boxy Italian car. I mean, I like boxy mm. cars generally, but boxy Italian cars. I mean, I had a string of Unos. I had the Tipo 16 valve. I had the Alpha 156, less boxy that so much, but still fairly roomy. They do know how to make a roomy car. But one that did come up, as you mentioned, on Auto Trader, which is a very dangerous game to play, mm. an Alpha 145 2-litre twin spark 16 valve cloverleaf three-door. That should be all you need to say to anyone who's got anything even remotely resembling petrol running through the veins. Mm-hmm. This is rocking horse excrement. It's it's rare as hen's teeth. I mean, it's a V-Ridge as well, so it's one of the last, 1999. I think they stopped making them a year or two after. It's a facelift. It's only done 66,000 miles, and the thing looks immaculate. And I I know, from to my cost, that appearances can be deceptive, but this one, apart from a max power exhaust on the back of the thing, which, if I bought it, would be getting replaced immediately, <laughs> it's got everything going for it. It's got the tele-dial wheels. Yes. It's it's mint. The thing is mint. It's got a tan leather interior. It's, it's absolutely, I mean, God knows... I can hear myself saying these things and just telling myself, no, 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 no. It's only £5,290. And as I, I mean, I basically had that car and another guy's and I know how well that thing went and how good it was, even though bits fell off left, right and centre. It was still the most awesome car. And it's one of the cars that I deeply regret getting shot of. And I look at this thing and it is my era. It's my era of hot hatchdom. And I'm looking at it thinking, if I had the money, that is one that I could basically throw all principles out the window for. It's one of those cars I think you should go and look at, but take someone slightly more objective with you. (laughs) (laughs) With a net. I've I've done this before now. You 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 go and look at something and think, oh, it's what I want. You get overexcited. And then it's a shed. Yeah. Thankfully, I've bought a, a, enough cars now that you, you, it's a bit like buying a house. Or you go in and you, you, you think, this feels right. You look at it, you stand next to you, think, yeah, this, this thing feels right. And when I see a low mileage alpha, I think, is that because it only made it that far? Or uh... <laughs> someone got fed up with trying to put the bits back oh, on and went, God. right, someone else's turn. But it is a bit of a unicorn. There can't have been very many, as you say, in the first place. And there definitely can't be very many of them left now. Certainly not in that state, well, i.e. in one bit, but in one, in one constituent part that still moves under its own steam. Most of it is in bits in various breakers' yards, I think, now. And that interior, oh, the Alphas do, they do get the interior just right. They really do. I think for me, yes. the interior more than the exterior in a lot of cases, I think they've, they've got right. The 156 I had had the Momo leather interior, mm. and that was just, I mean, it looks very similar to this. In fact, it probably is. I imagine it's Momo. I can't see anywhere where it says specifically. It probably does, um, but it looks very similar in terms of the sort of the fluted leather and the extended seat squab thing that you sit on. And and to be honest, looking at it, it does seem that the whole thing is bolted together relatively well. It seems to have all the dashboard panels, as far as I can see. And there must be blue tack in there somewhere. <laughs> no rattles at all. I think there's, there's something else with the, with the nostalgia. I mean, looking back, I think some cars look better in retrospect than they did at the time. I remember, I don't know what your thoughts are on, I mean, French stuff for me doesn't really, doesn't really do it. But I'm not sure what your thoughts are on the sort of Citroen, the XM, the Zantia and all that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I remember at the time thinking they looked really old-fashioned. I mean, quite bold, quite striking, 
But when you compared it to, say, the Laguna, let's keep with the French, mm. or even the Mondeo or whatever at the time, they're all quite curvy because you seem to go through this little pattern of 50s, 60s curvy, 70s, 80s boxy, 90s curvy, and then noughties, it started to get the angular lines like the original Focus and everything again, like the, I don't just think, trying to think of your humdrum cars, like the Astra H, was it, that was all quite squared off, all that kind of stuff. Mm. It got square again. And it was almost like it'd been left behind a decade. It was They were striking, but now, in, in retrospect, I look at them and I think, that, that looks nice now, because you don't have to think about it in the context of the time. Stands out. Yeah, it does. And it, when you say that that's a V-Reg, in my mind, mm. I think that it looks like it could be older because of yes. the shape of it, because it is quite boxy. And you think this is the same for quite a few Alphas, GTV, maybe. 75, the 155, yeah. those... Yeah, and and now I think they they look better for age because they've been removed from their context a bit. And if you yeah. saw that parked in a line of modern cars, you'd be like, "That's that is retro, but it is cool, definitely yes. cool." It's the kind of it's you'd honest. expect to see that at retro rides, wouldn't you, or something similar? Definitely, it, it's, it it's of its time and it's very much of its time. But you can appreciate it and enjoy it specifically because of that. It's not one of many that's just survived. It's one that survived and is different and survived. And it was of its type. There weren't many like it. I want to leave you with a thought. I went to a careers fair today and I was presenting. That, was, that sounds terrible. I wasn't presenting, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I was there. In the uh, medical I, sense. Not in the medical sense. Yeah. Hope Jim's plumbing has, uh, has sorted itself out. Um, yeah. I, I, so I was there and I, I, I talked to a number of people that were looking to join the motor industry in, in one form or another. And it was quite incredible the number of them that came up and said, oh, yes, you know, I'm interested in classic cars. And one of them, I said, well, when classic, how old do you mean? You know, 50s, 60s? He goes, oh, you know, early, early noughties. What? What? Blimey. And some of them were saying, I'm into, you know, into you know, 90s JDM. Like, Great. Lots of people are into 90s JDM. But, but this stuff is the, is the classic stuff. You know, these, these kids were, were probably not born uh, until mm. 2004, 2006, maybe some of them. And you think, <gasps> Oh my god, I suddenly feel so old. But we, oh, we, we look at these things as retro. Old. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely incredible. There you go. It, it's, it's, one of, it's one of those things we, we all seem to go for cars that were either around in our, our formative years or in our in our youth when we were kids. They're the cars that your dad owned. And we've, we've spoken before at things like the Great British Car Journey where you can drive. They have the whole series of you can drive your dad's car and all the rest of it. And it, it is definitely a, a powerful thing, nostalgia, and something I know that we've we've spoken about before and, and love to talk about but who knows next time we speak to you dave might be the proud owner of another alpha no, um it's, it's not gonna happen <laughs> there, there, a i haven't got the money and b i don't think i've got the patience <laughs> well watch this space and on that note i suppose it must be time for us to end so if you want to find us you can find us everywhere online we are at uk motor talk pretty much everywhere but until then i've been mike goodbye from me graham is goodbye thank you for listening and I've been Dave. Steer clear of Auto Trader if you're slightly tipsy and have a credit card in your hand. <laughs> Take care. No drunk buying now. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.